see what's uh, what's happening what's happening there so Welcome to just a brief word about our parking lot. Um, I had announced a few weeks ago that we'd be able to use the whole parking lot during our Sunday services, but uh, it rained. And so we're not quite where we thought. Who would, who would have thunk it was going to rain? And uh, that uh, uh, we haven't gotten as far as, as we have, so I hope it wasn't too much of an inconvenience. If it was, though, I hope this is the biggest inconvenience of your week, and uh, you should know that if it was, you live a very, very sheltered and wonderful life. So, And there's thousands upon thousands of believers throughout the world that would change uh, trade with you on this morning in terms of the difficulty of worshiping. So anyway, I hope that makes you feel bad if you complained as you came in. Uh, But I suppose you already confessed that and have been forgiven, so bless you. Uh, But... uh, Welcome this morning. As we come now uh, to the scripture, let me ask you please uh, to pray with me. Father in heaven, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We're utterly dependent upon you, God, speaking to us and teaching us and, and also to working in us by your spirit that we would not simply understand it, but we would receive it. That is, we would believe it and, and it would penetrate deep within our lives to bring that kind of transformation that keeps us from being conformed to the world, but, but rather enabling us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds as we, as we walk with you. So please, I pray that you would work in such a way that your word this morning would fulfill its great and deep purpose for our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to Ephesians in chapter 4. Ephesians in chapter 4. I want to read again. I've been reading this for a while. I have another couple of weeks. Uh, beginning with verse 17 through chapter 5 and verse 2. This is the word of God. Verse 17. Now this I say in testifying the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, And is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal. But rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted. Forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And therefore, be imitators of God, as beloved children, and walk in love, as Christ loved us, 
and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And together we say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now I want to take up, if God will help me, just this verse 28. Um, Let the thief steal no longer, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share uh, with anyone in need. And as I take up this passage, I'm aware that school has started for many. Uh, we'll start for university uh, students at KU at least tomorrow and, and then for others, I suppose, later. But, but as I do, um, I'm, I'm happy to be in this particular passage uh, on this particular week because it talks about, at least in part, our work and the normalcy, if you will, the expectation that we work. And, and so as students are in school, I think it's important for them, our kids, but particularly, I suppose, our university students to be thinking about, to be thinking about work. There's a sense in which um, this educational process is at least in part in preparation for that. One of my kids reminds me from time to time uh, that when she went off to college, I mentioned to her, I said, don't major in a hobby. I had this deep desire that they would someday be gainfully employed. And so uh, uh, she reminds me of that fact. And so we're in school, at least in part. There's other areas which we enjoy. But we're in school to, to yeah, enhance this life that is expected of us, that we will, in fact, work, the apostle says, doing honest work with his own or her own her own hands. It's significant for us, and we've mentioned this so far, I think a couple of times in the midst of our services, should be in your minds at least, that we have been, as human beings, created in the image of God, created in the likeness of God. Turn, it's a very familiar part of Scripture, to Genesis in in chapter 1, please. Genesis in chapter 1, verse 27. Actually, let me go back to verse 26. Genesis 1, 26. In the midst of the creation account in Genesis 1. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female. He created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens and every living creature that moves on the earth. And then we read in chapter 2 in verse 5 as, as, as this Genesis account of creation zeroes in on this Creation of human beings. Verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom they had, whom he had formed. And then in verse 15 of chapter 2, 
the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And then to um, show how they were to continue to um, fulfill God's mandate upon them. Verse 23. Um, Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. What we see in all of this, as I mentioned, we're created in the image of God. And, and, and we read um, in verse 24 of Ephesians 4 that um, uh, God has made us as believers to put on this new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And so we find as believers that he's transforming us. He's creating us anew, if you will, in his likeness. We're to reflect his image. It was broken because of our sin. But if we go back to these opening chapters of Genesis, we get a sense of what this image of God is, at least in part. We realize that um, we're to take dominion over the earth, that God has made the earth and he's placed human beings in it. You see, he made us to be in on this earth and, and he's given us dominion over it to govern it. Now, that doesn't mean we govern it absolutely. In other words, we're still in his likeness, his image. So we're to govern it in the way that pleases him, in a way that reflects him. You see, the dominion that we're to take, the governing of the earth that we're to, 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 to have as human beings is to be done uh, not separate from God, but in a way that reflects him. We're image bearers, which means that we as human beings are to reflect God in all of the earth, all that we do and all that we think and all that we say. You see, it's to be a reflection of God, the very one who made us. We don't become God. We make us in the likeness of God, in the image of God. It doesn't mean we're gods. It simply means that we're to reflect him as his creatures were to reflect, were to reflect God. And we see one of the things that's very true about God, very true, I shouldn't have said that, one of the things true about God, everything's very true about God, um, one of the things that's true about God is that he, he works, he creates. Um, the poets refer to the creation as God's handiwork, if you will, you see. So he creates. And therefore it shouldn't surprise us that being created in his image that we too would work. It shouldn't surprise us that when Adam was put into the garden, that he was put there, at least in part, to work. In fact, he would work in such a way that his work would be worship. His work would be giving thanks to God. His work would be that which would honor God. His work would be that would reflect God. God is creator. God is one who works, thus we work. When God created the earth, he created it, we can put it this way, many have, with great potential. With great potential. And he put human beings on it in order to bring out its potential, if you will, to work it. So that's what we do. We can see it in the sense of the garden to cultivate this garden, you see, to keep it. But we can see it also to make really culture and even 
civilizations of human beings work together, live together in community together to work, to meet one another's needs, to share life with each other and all of that. And all that that means, you, you see that that's what was, was, was beginning here and was to begin here. And all of this was to image God. And, and as, as they were indeed fruitful and multiply, as more children came along, more people came along, that they too were to image God in this way and, 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 and everything would worship and reflect who God, who God is, you see. And this work, you see, then is part of who we are, made in the image of God. Without it, the image of God isn't seen. With it, the image of God is then seen, uh, of course. And so it's interesting, and I'll just give you, if I might, just a little theological background for a moment. It's interesting, especially during the time of the Reformation, when the Reformers began to think about work, they tacked on or tacked on, they grabbed on to this word vocation. Um, it comes from a Latin word that means calling, to, to be called. And, and the reformist says, now, we have a variety of many, each individual has many, many callings in their lives. Um, some have separated them out like this. First, there's the primary calling, especially in the life of the Christian, there, wherein a person is called to believe in and to follow Jesus. In fact, that's been Paul's whole point here as he's been writing to this church in Ephesus that, that we're called. You'll notice in, in, in chapter 4 and verse 1 what begins this particular section. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And so we realize we've been called to believe. We've been called to life. We've been called to eternal life. We belong to live in the kingdom of God, if you will. We've been called. That's an important word because when you think of being called, what, you really, what we really must think of is this is something that's coming from someone else, right? You don't call yourself. Maybe you do by accident, but it's really weird when your phone rings and it's you, uh, right? Uh, uh, and so, so we don't call ourselves. So we think about being called. We think about coming from the outside. And that's Paul, been Paul's whole point about our salvation. He's saying, looking because of sin in your life, you have no real inclination to follow after God. That's what sin does. It moves us away from God rather than to him. And so in order for you then to be reconciled to God, he must do it. He must call. And so in chapter one, when Paul prays for me, he says, he says, I want you to know the hope to which he has called you. You see, he calls us. It comes from the outside. It comes from him. It can't come from us because of sin. So it comes from outside. And so we realize that when this call comes from God, it's powerful. In the same way that when Jesus was at the tomb of Lazarus, he called him. Lazarus was dead. He'd been dead for four days. He'd been dead for long enough that everybody was convinced he's really dead. He's not faking this. He was really dead. And so Jesus called him, you see. And he called him with this effective call, this powerful call. And so that's the call of the Holy Spirit. And so when Paul says we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God had made us alive together with Christ Jesus, Ephesians chapter 2, he says, there was this call that came that was effective. That's why Paul, when he wrote to the church in Rome, he says, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all he believe. It's power. It comes and it changes. It works life where there is death 
It frees where there's enslavement, you see. And so this calling, so make great sense and very helpful for um, those particular theologians to, to grab hold of this word vocation and say, our calling is to believe in and to follow Jesus. That's our primary calling. But from that comes various other callings that come from God and come from others even. The, the call to be part of a family. We're called, uh, as I read in Genesis 2, that a man should leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two should become one flesh. So we're called to be part of family. God has made family. And so uh, I'm called to be a husband, a father, a son, an uncle, great uncle, great, great uncle. Our family's big. And, and so we're called to all of that. You, you're calling in the context of family. And this, this comes to us from God and, and even from, from others. I've been called to be a husband by my wife. I didn't call myself to be a husband. I mean, I tried, but if she would have said no, poof, right? And so I didn't call, I didn't call myself to be a son, Right? happened apart from me so so it's a calling it comes from and, and then there's a this calling also in the context of 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 a of, a, of community of, of of community in terms of being a good citizen you see we're called to be citizens of this city of this state of this nation of the world and 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 to live together with others and to pursue we trust the common good of everyone we're, we're to be good citizens in the midst of that that's a calling you see that comes comes from us. I didn't ask to be born into this country, but here I am, and I'm called then to be a citizen here. Um, um, and then we have the callings in the context of church life, right? Various callings upon us to whatever the gifts that God has given to us to minister and to serve one another as well. And then this calling to work. Now, the reason I'm emphasizing this whole notion of calling is because I want us to realize, because we don't always because very often we think about our work as that which is mine. But it's a calling. It means I've been called to serve. That's the nature of work. And you might say, well, I picked my own job. And I'm sure you did. And I picked my job because I, I like it and it's my passion and it's what I want to do and I'm good at it. All that's great. But if no one called you to do it, <laughs> you wouldn't be doing it. It'd be a hobby, right? You wouldn't be doing it. Work means I've been called by another to serve. Now, sometimes we would like a job, a vocation in that sense, yet no one's called us to do it. So we don't. <laughs> we do that which people call us to do. Might be customers who call us to do it. Might be an employer that calls us to do it. But the point is that we do it to serve. That's, that's where God has intended, God intends for our work to be understood, that we are called to serve others. That's how God has made it so that we would meet one another's needs. You know, God decided not to populate the earth by way of miracle, but by way of a man and a woman being united together. Now you say, well, that's a miracle. We can talk about that. It's really cool to see the birth of a child. But that's the way. He decided not to do it 
and create individual people like he did Adam from the dust of the earth. He said, I'm going to use this means of a man and a woman coming together. And the way that he's decided to meet our material needs is by way of us working to serve one another. And can you see how that builds community? We're utterly dependent upon each other. We need each other in the midst of this. Not any one of us can can do it all. Not any one of us is sufficient to do it all. We need one another, you see. I need you to to provide for me. You need me, I suspect, to provide for you in various ways. And we come together, you see, as a community. In fact, Martin Luther, one of the reformers who talked about vocation, put it like this. He said, our vocations are like God wearing a mask. He's really meeting our needs. But he's meeting our needs through other people. In fact, sometimes community is built even unbeknownst to the community building it. Karen and I just went to Florida, as I mentioned, to, to celebrate her parents' 70th, 70, 70th wedding anniversary, um, which is a, was a delight. And it's a delight to know that in 2011, we also gathered to celebrate my parents' 70th wedding anniversary. I remember asking my dad, or one of a, my sons-in-laws, my dad, you may not remember this, um, what it took to be married along, you know, for 70 years, what was the secret? And my father simply answered, you have to live a long time. Uh, which, may I say parenthetically, is true if you understand the nature of marriage. Right? If you understand the nature of marriage, what it really takes is to live a long time, to be married a long time. Because if you really understand the nature of marriage... You'll stay married a long time for all the days of your life. So we were there. But one of the ways we could have never gotten there on our own. In fact, there are countless hundreds, at least, of people who helped us get there, most of whom had no idea they were helping us get there. Like the people who, who built um, Harris and Connie's car so they could drive us to the airport. Right? The people who built the roads and maintained all the roads. People who made our suitcases. Right? And our clothes. And all the people who worked for the airlines. And all the people that should have been working for the airlines that weren't. Uh, and and all, you can just imagine all the people that it took to serve us to get us there. And that's how God meets our needs. By way of this work, we need to know that. that work is normal. Work is how we express the image of God. Work is how we serve. That's why it's important to understand the callings, that it's a calling for us. Now, we use that phrase very often, the calling, when we're talking to ministers. People often ask me, um, um, how and when did you know you were called to the ministry? And I get that, and I want to always remember that it's a calling. I want to always remember that it comes from God and it comes from people so that what I do... I have to remember is always to serve. My first question isn't about my job. Do I like it? My first question is, am I serving the people I've been called to serve? See? But snarky pastors like me, when I'm asked, how and when did you know and discern your calling? I turn to them and say, so... How and when did you discern your calling? How did it come to you? Did you know you're called as an accountant? That you know you're called to be a mechanic? That you know you're called to be a plumber? That you know you're called to be whatever it is that you're doing? 
Because it's a calling too. Everything's a calling that we do. Because all of it for a believer, especially is sacred unto God. But for everyone, this is the way God has determined to meet needs, that we may serve each other. So whatever it is your calling is, it's no greater or lesser than whatever it is that some pastor's calling may be. I hope you understand that. Right? I hope you understand that. It's important for us to realize that that everything that we do is to be done for the glory of God. Every type of work and every type of good work, if you will, work that isn't immoral, every kind of good work is, is good. And, and God is good to empower and enable us to do it, you see? Because it serves the needs of, of others. This is how we're to do it. So then you might say, well, if that's the way human beings are, are to be, why stealing? You know, Paul starts out this, this little uh, sentence by saying, uh, let the thief steal no more. And you, you might think, Phew, that's great because I don't shoplift. I don't take stuff from people's houses. <laughs> Listen, I can just coast on this one. This is a good one. I'm, I'm not, a, not a thief. But, but realize that when Paul writes to this church uh, in Ephesus, there must have been thieves And could I put it like this? They were born again thieves. I mean, he's writing to church people. We have to trust that he's writing to believers here. These those who profess believers, but but those who are believers here, you see? And and you might say, well, how can that be? How can there be any thieves in the church? And you go, well, can there be sinners in the church? Uh, Yeah, right? We get that. We are that. And so he's just simply saying in the same way that, that he said, you know, stop lying and stop being angry sinfully and, and, and there's corrupting talk. He says, so he's saying, you're going to live by the renewing of your mind. I need to teach you this. And it could be in certain cultures and it could be in that day that stealing, at least for some people, was simply a way of life. And then they're converted. And it may be that they really don't see that stealing is something that's against the image of God. And so they have to be told. In fact, some, perhaps, if it's a deeply embedded sin, it may, it may need to be told over and over again because they may be tempted and succumb to that temptation over and over again. Because, you see, we know this to be true. We know that just because a person is born again, just because a person uh, is this new creature in Christ, just because this person is this new self, doesn't mean that every sinful inclination is washed away. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a preacher in England um, in the last century, um, uh, gives this illustration. He says that he had two men in his church, both of whom were alcoholics before they came to faith in Christ. And he said they were genuine believers, born-again men. For the one, as soon as he became a Christian, his taste and desire for alcohol simply, he says, left him. But he says, for the other, he struggled the rest of his life. And he said, those are the ways of God. He says, I don't understand that. But in the wisdom of God, he knows what's best for each. But but he says, this is simply true. And you know that perhaps in your own life, that when you came to faith in Christ, there might have been some sins that you had been involved in. And and you said, well, I realize this is wrong. And and for some reason, it it just was fairly easy for you to to sort of put those off of your life. But, 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 But maybe... Every Sunday, 
when we bow for confession, you say what I often say. All right, Lord, I did it again. All right, Lord, I thought it again. Right? So here we go. There are some sins that simply may plague us. And so even for some who are thieves, it could well be this is a difficult thing. It might not be a difficult thing for you, but, but think about all the ways that we can really steal. I mean, we can steal in a variety of, of ways. You know, culturally, we lock up everything. Why? Well, part of it is because we don't want bodily harm, but part of it is because we know that people steal. I remember... I don't know if it was in the late 60s or the early 70s exactly when this uh, little advertisement came out. But, but there was a movement, and this may be shocking to you now given the world in which we live. There was a movement then to encourage people to lock their cars. Because it was easy to steal a car and the keys in the ignition. But in the 50s and 60s, people just left their keys in the ignition. But there came a time when stealing cars then became more epidemic. So there was this, this little campaign on the Hoopadon, but it says, lock your cars, don't help a good boy go bad. Never dawned on them that good boys don't steal cars, but you get the point. Given the right opportunity, any of us might be tempted. The right circumstance, for the right thing, at the right time. It was an understanding of what at least at one point in time, and we still call human nature, that is this sinful condition. And so, so that's the sense, you see. And so we lock up things. And we, we know, I mean, students tell us every semester of bicycles that have been stolen and computers that have been stolen and all of that, not to mention cheating that goes on for students and even professors and even pastors. I've sat on many situations where pastors have been accused of plagiarizing sermons and so forth and so on, stealing. So we see it, uh, see it even there. Employers not paying enough to their workers, underpaying them, stealing in that sense. People fudging on their expense reports, uh, dare I mention taxes, uh, embezzlement, identity theft, Stealing, uh, selling things to people that they don't really need. Stealing someone's innocence through sexual abuse or misconduct, perhaps. Taking when you're really able to work. And then, of course, slothfulness, just laziness at work. Just not doing your work effectively or efficiently. Uh, being lazy at your work, stealing from your employer. Doing things at work that you shouldn't be doing at work because you should be working. Uh, when you're at work. And then, of course, what the prophet Malachi says to the people of Israel, you've been robbing from, you've been stealing from God because you haven't been paying your tithes. So we have to ask ourselves that question too. Am I robbing from God? But you see, the difficulty with this stealing is that, of course, but, but it's also what's underneath all of that. Because you see, what stealing tells us when we have a, a person who's tempted to steal, uh, when we have a culture of stealing, what that tells us is there's a deeply embedded selfishness and self-centeredness, both of which are contrary to the image of God that's to be in us. This sense of selfishness, that all I care about is what is mine. So what is mine in, is mine, and what is yours is mine. 
And this, this lack of love, you see, rather than existing to love one another, rather than existing in the image of God to love as God loves, and rather than, than living to serve one another, I'm living to serve myself. So I'm not thinking of you when I'm stealing from you, when I'm taking from you. I'm not thinking of my employer when I'm not doing my job as I ought to be doing it. I'm not thinking of, 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 of the one from whom I'm stealing. I'm thinking of myself. I'm thinking this is mine and I want it. I don't care about you. And so it's a real lack of love. And it's a lack of respect, of course, for others. And it destroys community. It destroys unity. We can no longer trust one another. One of the wonderful things when I was in seminary and, and going to school, uh, we lived, Karen and I and our two kids at the time, uh, in seminary housing. And it's amazing the trust level that exists in such a community. Not that seminarians are, are above being untrustworthy, but... Most of us didn't lock our apartment doors. Most of us didn't tend to them. Most, if you knocked twice and went in, that was, that was sufficient to get into somebody else's apartment in time. Why? Because there's this real sense of community. We trusted each other. But when stealing takes place, when you have that kind of selfishness, that kind of lack of love, you're living in a community like that, there can't be unity. And, and Paul is writing to a church saying, listen, we have to live in such a way that the world sees that God is unifying a people for himself. That he's reconciled us not only with himself, but also with each other. That he's developing, creating this community of love. And if stealing exists, that can't be true. So you need to live in purity, that is an obedience, and not steal. And not only that, but, but stealing wastes wonderful resources that God has given us to use for the common good, to use to serve others. Our intellect. You know, you know uh, many of the movies that we watch these days <clears throat> are about people sinning. And, and some of the, frankly, intriguing ones are about thieves. Um, various oceans movies. And it's amazing how much that goes into... All of that. And you think if you could only take that thought, if you could only take that reasoning, if you could only take that logic, if you could only take that effort, if you could only take that energy and put it into something that blesses other people and somebody doesn't take, wow! It would be amazing what some thieves could produce to bless, to bless others. So all of that, you see, besmirches, if we could use that word, the image of God in us. So then Paul says, all right, stop stealing. The stealing, you see, is the result of sin. Stop stealing. Stop taking what doesn't belong to you. Stop being adverse, averse to work. And now work. Work so you can reflect the image of God. Work so you can know the joy. You say, really? The jo-? Yes. Work so you can know the joy. Now, our work isn't as joyful as it would have been had Adam not sinned. It's not as joyful as it will be when the new heavens and the new earth come and we live on the new earth. You do know that you're always going to be human. You're never going to be an angel. You know that. You know that when you die, you don't get wings, right? You don't float around forever and sing. But there will be a new heavens and a new earth. And we'll live 
in the presence of God, when heaven comes to earth and the earth is renewed, we're going to live forever as human beings, no doubt, working in some real sense, serving one another, perfectly reflecting the image of God, you see, by loving one another in perfect community. Then work will be wonderful. I'll be out of a job. But, so who knows what I would get to do, but, but we'll be working, you see. And, and that'll be a good thing. We'll know the joy of it. But even still, to know the joy of doing everything to the glory of God. We'll pick this up more in chapter 6, but, but just bear that, bear that in mind. What I want you to see, and this is Paul's punchline in this whole sentence. You may have missed it, but he says, let the thief steal no longer. And then he says, uh, uh, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. That's the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel transforms a person from one who takes what rightfully belongs to another for themselves to a person who then actually works so that he or she can take what rightfully belongs to him or her and give it to somebody else. You, you see the complete transformation there. John Stott puts it like this. He says, God's the only one. The gospel is the only thing that can turn a burglar into a benefactor. Right? One who doesn't take, but now who? One who actually gives. And who does that remind you of? Maybe the one who was rich but for our sakes became poor so that through his poverty we might become rich. The very one who didn't take but who gave up that which was rightly his to those who didn't deserve it. Or this one who we read about this morning as well. That was... 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, by the way. But this passage from Philippians 2, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He didn't cling to his glory, that which was rightfully his. But he gave himself so that we could have. Paul says that's the transforming power of the gospel. Very quickly, I know I'm out of time. Very quickly, but 1 Corinthians in chapter 6 and verse 9. The apostle writes, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor, adult, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers. And my sense is, he had a longer list but ran out of paper. I mean, we could keep writing various things here will inherit the kingdom of God. It says not thieves. Well, well, what about the thieves in the church? Well, Paul is saying, listen, 
thieves. Trust Christ. It can transform your life. Now, you may still struggle, but you're no longer a thief. Why? Because it no longer is your identity. It's no longer who you are. You know it's wrong. You confess it. You repent. You trust the Lord to work in your life. It isn't your life anymore. That's the transforming power of the gospel. You can take a thief and turning into a generous giver. Not from what he's stolen, but what he's worked with his own hands. And that's true for all of these. For those who are sexually immoral, he says, listen, I can transform you from one who is sexually immoral to one who desires to live a pure life sexually, and I'll help you. For those who are idolaters, Adulterers, those who practice homosexuality, those who are greedy, those who are drunkards, not revilers, not swindlers. Because you see, there's great hope in the gospel. And that's his point here. There's great hope in the gospel. There's great hope for thieves. He can change you into be one who lives out the image of God. There's great hope for idolaters. There's great hope for those who are sexually immoral. There's great hope for those who are greedy and drunkards and revilers and swindlers and swindlers and you name your sin. There's great hope. Great hope. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you for your kindness in revealing this to us today. Thank you for your wonderful grace that would enable us to know the hope to which we have been called. Thank you that even as we look into our own lives and still yet as believers in Jesus still see sin in our lives, And know the misery that it causes, we still can trust you and know that you're at work. Please help us to put off all that which is linked to our former manner of life. And to put on all that which reflects you. It shows your glory. This I pray in Jesus' name.